John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What happens if you give all that up? I mean, the pork and... You get sick and then you get a medical or something? Like when I was on the outside, I ran this hustle. I tried to act like... I'm telling you God's words, not no hustle. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where we are continuing our season of Lee with part two of our exploration of Malcolm X. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in San Diego, California. Uh, and um, just excited to be going back into this movie uh, to talk about so many of the wonderful things in, in, in Malcolm X here. Absolutely, and we are excited to welcome back to our microphones the incredible writer, director, producer, actor, Andre Gordon. Welcome back to The Cinephiles. Thanks for having me back, guys. I was just talking to uh, to the guys here before about mm. how I had to be emotionally prepared to get into this movie, and I'm emotionally prepared to be in this podcast today. I'm ready. Okay. You, you've okay. done the necessary work to... Uh, hum hum <laughs> John hum hum Huh. It, someone should someone should for those listening i believe this is one of the many actor warm-ups that we were all taught at some point in theaters huh. i would i would love to see just like the montage of all the crazy actor warm-ups yeah that's happening. That uh, making it up. Just watch right Barry. Now. It's all over Barry. Uh, all those warm ups. Oh my god, my girlfriend watches Barry with me, and I have PTSD watching that show from <laughs> from terrible acting classes and people in acting classes and actors in general. And it is uh, it is tough for me to watch that show because of those exercises and a million other things, man. 
uh, yeah, I mean, we have a long podcast to get oh, into, sorry. but maybe we'll maybe we'll do a cinephile short at some yeah. point to Thank talk you. about all the horrible acting <laughs> class experiences. And I've had them as a teacher, too, which is oh, also okay. not fun. Yeah, sure. um, <laughs> but we are not here to talk about that. We are here to return to the incredible film Malcolm X by Spike Lee. And gentlemen, if you're ready, we could just jump right back into where we left off, yeah. which was in a bar right after Malcolm Little, still at this time, dressed in a gorgeous red zoot suit, has hit a gentleman in the face with a bottle for talking about his mama, and now sidles up to the bar and orders a single whiskey. And in the background, the incredibly stylish and brilliant actor Delroy Lindo, playing West Indian Archie, holds up two fingers. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Spike Lee first saw Delroy Lindo on Broadway. I think it was on Broadway in August Wilson's Joe Turner Come and Gone, which is mm. a fantastic play. Do you guys think that Delroy Lindo's underrated or under underrecognized as yes. as, as far as yeah. black actors go? Yeah. Because I feel like he's a titan and he is not mentioned up there in the likes with, uh, you know, Denzel, even Danny Glover. Even um, Samuel. Uh, yeah, Delta. Samuel. Uh, he's yeah. kind of like left behind i don't know why that is and this is a a pinnacle piece of work for him i can happily say that he's not underrated as far as black actors go he's underrated as far as actors go i mean he's yeah, like yeah. the guy's phenomenal and is what he does in this performance is amazing very much so now what did you sing with jack the doubles on that gentleman jack <laughs> and don't worry lindo calls him over he cautiously goes over very cautious i would say That's what they call you Red. I don't know if he was called Red when he was in Boston or on the train, but I do know that the name Detroit Red, which was his nickname, didn't come until he had been in Harlem for a long time. And he was, in fact, the third city named Red to be in Harlem. Hmm. The first was St. Louis Red, who was a guy who ended another uh, criminal who ended up in prison. And the second is Chicago Red. Hmm. And Chicago Red is a guy that... Detroit Red worked with when he was working at a club and did Chicago Red was a dishwasher and Malcolm X described this guy as the funniest man he had ever met mm. and that man is Red Fox <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Wow. wow isn't that cool that's crazy yeah the number of people that Malcolm X kind of is around yeah. you know and, and of course later in life we know because there was just this movie that came out that he was obviously around Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, and also, you know, Jim Brown and Sam Cooke was a buddy of his. And like, like, and, and this movie is not telling that story at all. And of course it shouldn't. It's, this is the correct story the movie she's telling, but it is amazing how many people he knew in the entertainment and sport world. So I hear tell you, uh, you're a good man to know. We hear that. Boston, where I'm from. Has he ever heard of West Indian Archie before walking in this bar? Of course not. He's hustling. <laughs> what a hustler does. He hustles. You bullshitting me or what? First thing my father ever taught me was you never bullshit a West Indian bullshit artist. Your daddy is West Indian. My mama. She from Grenada. That's actually true. His mama, his mother was born in Grenada. So that's where I kind of go some of what he's, and I guess that's all good cons should have pieces oh, yeah. of the truth. Of course. It allows you to anchor. Not that yeah. I know anything about that. <laughs> this will be another excellent file short all the secrets to a good con <laughs> and then they start talking about his clothes and this is ruth carter wanted him to look out of place the, and this is why you know wardrobe tells a story 
just like sure does. performance does. And this is really important here. And this is also the first time when he starts to write something down because he's going to write down in information about West Indian Archie that Archie says, don't ever write anything down. File it in here. Because if the man don't have any paper, he will never have any proof. And this, of course, is something that's going to come back later on in, in the movie. And then this is the great moment. It's clear that West Indian Archie likes Malcolm. And he's clear that he's talking about working with him. And then Archie says, hey boy, look me in the face. You just now con me. I think this is where we begin to see how much power this guy has inside. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's not the hitting the guy with the bottle. Yeah. That shows his willingness to violence. Yes, sir. Why? Because I want to hit. Do you think the direction of his life would be different if he tr did lie at this moment? Yeah, I think he would have been nowhere near uh, what he achieved um, in this section of his life. Because if he wasn't honest with him, I think he'd have never taken him into his confidence and would have set him up in some negative way down the road, you know. Um, but by being honest with him. And what's great about this moment, too, is the acting performance here from Denzel. All the swaggering, smiling, smirking, cockiness completely drains from his face and he's back to being a scared kid and this is what's great and this is denzel like what in his 30s like playing this character the way he is and there's just a look when that moment happens that you immediately get a peek behind the curtain of his inner child of his inner person right um and later we'll see this again when the conflict comes up about the numbers this ski fear right and so he surrenders this vulnerability in this moment out of respect to the leadership, to the power here that you mentioned from West Indian Archie. He immediately uh, surrenders the power to him because he understands that this is the moment to do so. You know, and a good instinctual person understands the moments where they can surrender things and then when they have to play a certain character or role to survive. And certainly this is great to see here in this moment. I remember when I first saw this as, mm. a, as a West Indian, Oh, right. Wow, this guy is powerful. Hmm. This guy's smooth. And, and this is before, you know, <clears throat> we found out who he really was, even yeah. within that conversation. But I thought, like, man, you know what? He's got a nice suit on. He's not loud like the other, like, like, uh, like Malcolm. <clears throat> and then I, I had some interesting feelings watching. This West Indian man who is in a position of power, you know, not even necessarily fall into the stereotype that West Indians fall into, because that's not a typical stereotype. Yeah. But uh, of how, you know, you can how uh, these different black people. Right. We've, we've seen uh, this Grenadian woman. We've seen the. Uh, little flashes of of the dad we've seen now Denzel we've seen or seeing this uh, West Indian man and I, it was just interesting to me to see all these different type of black people mm -hmm. come together in this in this uh, part of the movie and how Spike Lee was able to capture all that different type of culture that I don't necessarily think it's uh, acknowledged as much as it should because there are several different types of black culture and Spike captured all of them i think that's a fantastic point and uh well and this again it's like again as, as white guy is none of this was on film nobody had yeah. put these kinds of characters particularly not on a big budget mainstream mm -hmm. 
Hollywood epic. N- none of these stories had ever been told in that way. Yeah. You might just do, Mr. Red. Unless, of course, you have to get back to your train job. I already told that man what he can do with that train. When? Just now. And it is very obvious that West Indian Archie uh, took on Malcolm. It's almost like a father-son relationship. Mm. He dresses him now in a more conservative suit. He gives him his first gun. Yeah. I mean, that's what a father does. And it was I know my dad gave me his first gun. Who? No, he didn't. I was going to say. Did he say this was my first gun? Like he he gave Denzel his first gun or he gave him his own personal first gun? I believe that he says this was my first gun. Correct. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Um, but I, it felt like Denzel, he didn't feel like um, a shoot him up type of guy to me. Like, he, no. you know, he busted him with the with the bottle and he seemed like he was scrappy with his fists. But, you know, yeah. I think it was also like a little bit of a transition into this type of huh, power again, because yeah. there was power in being able to blow someone away, yeah. even if it shouldn't. Right. Um, and, I, and I should say, so uh, Malcolm Little, when he first came to Harlem, there really was a West Indian Archie. He really did end up working for him, but he didn't he didn't work for him right away. He, he was working as a waiter in clubs in sort of legitimate jobs, but he was also dealing reefer and other drugs. And then he was doing what they he called facilitating. And there's some sick fucking shit that Malcolm Little was adjacent to which is that facilitating meant that there are a whole bunch of white people who want to get their what turns them on whatever stuff they're into up with black people in harlem and so he would be the guy that would pick them up and drive them up to the prostitute to the you know where they would be whipped or where they would be i mean like all of that stuff he was making happen it's it's a tough line to walk on a on a biopic right because you you want the audience to connect to the character and care for the character. So where do you cut out the truth in order to keep the character sympathetic? And where, do, where are you honest with the character? So Spike clearly didn't want to show that. And just like in uh straight out of Compton, they didn't show them selling drugs and killing people. Like the, you didn't see that from the NWA guys. And some of them did certainly easy. He did. And so they, they kind of glossed over that a little bit to try to kind of keep them as heroic in a way or, or sympathetic in a way. And I always uh, kind of have hesitations with that kind of stuff, you know, and it happens for all like Lawrence of Arabia. They kind oh, yeah. of, you know, pushed away some stuff that Lawrence did. I'm sure there's some William Wallace shit, uh, which is, oh, well. so, I mean, Braveheart is so not a, a correct biopic or accurate biopic, but like there are so many biopics that just kind of push stuff away or push stuff underneath. And, don't want to uh, focus on the unsavory stuff. But I always think, I guess in a movie you can't do that, but in a series, I think it's good to see it because you see the growth, you see the change of what he went through. And and that happens, you know? Um, And I think it's important because so many people change from who they were to who they are when they finally understand and embrace what their power is, you know? so That's probably why Mike was like, I need three hours, right? Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there's it is very clear in the actual autobiography yeah. why it's important to Malcolm that he says it all. Yep. yep. You know, yep. is that he wants to his honesty about where he came from and what he did mm-hmm. is part of what the the power of the revelation of Islam is. Yeah. That this is and to be to deny what he had been through would be to devalue what the transformation is. Mm-hmm. 
But in terms of a film, I also go, you go like, well, I need to create something that's symbolic of this time. I can't tell you, I don't have time to tell you all the stuff. And yeah. so you, you, you elevate West Indian Archie to be the symbol of this period in his mm -hmm. life. Yeah. And then we go into what the, the business is, which is the numbers, which is a thing that I had no experience with, but this was serious, big business and maybe still is you know, in all sorts of communities. And there's this montage of him collecting numbers. And we see whether it's a cast register or a Bible verse or, a, you know, a batting average or something, all these places that people get their numbers from. Three, one, three. 255. It got to be 251. Do you want to know how they shot this? <laughs> Please. Um, so the uh, editor is Barry Alexander Brown, and he right. also was serving as the second unit director. And so what he did was every single location they were at while Spike is shooting the main movie, he's going, how am I going to get a numbers moment? And he would grab an extra and give them a line or he put some numbers somewhere and he would just every location they were in with a church store, a bar, wherever he would shoot one little numbers moment. Oh, wow. That's smart. Where was I? <laughs> yeah. In school, I think. Oh, yeah. You were a kid. Um, I was at uh, Southwood Middle School. There you go. Oh, wow. Nope. And then we're going to do some drugs. And Sophia is back, which she really oh. was at this time. Yeah. And by the way, you might notice they're, they're doing cocaine and you see them about to snort the cocaine, but you never see them actually snort cocaine. You know why? Because that is the difference between a PG-13 and an R. Wow. True. It's uh, This rating stuff is so dumb to me. It's like, we know they're doing cocaine and you're saying that it becomes an R-rated movie. If you have just the shot where they snort it, then it's R. Yeah. Right. R. But you can say nigger all movie. Whole movie. And it's not an R. I think the performances from Denzel Washington and Delroy Lindo in this scene where they're on drugs is so, they're so great. Yeah. In particular, Delroy Lindo. Because to me, what I feel from him, and he's just standing in the corner against the, kind of leaning against the wall, watching his protege have fun. And to me, I just see like pure love from him. Yeah. yeah. That's what I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. And then, which by the way, my advice to anyone doing drugs, never pull out your gun. Don't play with guns when you're on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> Should be a basic rule. Um, but Denzel <laughs> does. And again, we're playing like cops and robbers. And again, just like in the scene with Shorty, the bang bang becomes the sound of a real gunshot. Yeah. And there's one other thing that happens in this scene, which is that Malcolm pulls out some money and calls a number eight, yeah. two, one. And he wants all versions of it. One, combinate, combinate me. So did he really pay West Indian Archie? Did he give him the money for these numbers? I would say yes. I think so too. And Archie was high as shit. Yeah. So, Everyone's human. I don't yeah. care how great you are. And he clearly didn't remember. Well, and this is the thing. Don't make don't make important business deals without yeah. when you're with people that don't write anything down yeah. when you're high <laughs> shit. Probably the number one the rule. Yeah. Never get high on your own supply. Ah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're back at that same bar, and there's a, a a waitress there who obviously Malcolm has stood up and uh, he, you can see how he has transformed yeah. just a couple of scenes later. He is, I would say more confident, more dangerous, 
more cruel, he's a willing wire. to be cruel. Yeah, he's a live wire, man. Yeah. And then as she's sort of, you know, saying how she was disappointed in that, yeah. we see a guy walk in and speak to a woman, and he is asking her for money. I need a fire spot. I just gave you 10 this morning. Laura, give me the goddamn five hours. And the woman is Laura that we had met earlier in Boston. Yeah. I think when I first saw this movie, I didn't connect that this was the same person. Because it's just later on in a different city and different outfits, and I didn't connect it. But it is the same person that he wouldn't, that he was dating when he met Sophia in Boston. She know he's strung out? If she got eyes, she do. And then this question. She ain't hooking it. That's a dark question and a, and a dark understanding of how the world works. Well, because that's how the world works. And he understands having lived in where he's lived, having experienced now this area for a little bit. He knows how this goes, you know, and Teresa Randall's basically sits in as he says later, as Malcolm says later, when he becomes Malcolm X, and, you know, as we see Teresa Randall going in to, to, to be essentially perform the job of a hooker in a moment uh, later on in the film. You know, how many of our women were were turned into this when they could have been something more, when they could have been scientists, doctors, teachers, mm -hmm. all these kinds of things. And he's speaking about, it. you know, now it's commonplace we see for black women to achieve. So we just had the first Supreme Court justice who was uh, voted in, um, uh, who was black female. And but like back when Malcolm was talking about this and experiencing this in 1960s, 1950s, this is the way it was, you know, turned out by their men, turned out. Because they're because the men got you know strung on shit, or they themselves needed money, and this was an option because there were not a lot of jobs that were hiring black women to go at uh, be to go work. You know, a women period, but certainly black women even less so. You know, sadly. By the by, the way, another thing in the autobiography is he, is Malcolm describes the process by which, and now he really wasn't a pimp. He, that he said that was yeah. something he wasn't good at but he certainly knew pimps and he described a method by which they would draw in and manipulate and uh turn a woman to prostitution and it's just you know as you'd imagine horrible and sad and awful and um and this waitress is now kind of trying to interrogate malcolm about this woman and he is getting angry and he stands up and he is about to hit her yeah. in this bar when West Indian Archie catches his wrist. And look at look at Denzel's face before he knows who grabbed him. Because he is about to go to town on that person. Mm -hmm. And Archie pays off the waitress and sits down. And Sophia is now there. One thing I want to point out is that Denzel Washington continues to have straight red hair. Yeah. Well, straightening and dyeing someone's hair repeatedly to keep it exactly the same which they had to do throughout the film that's not good for anyone's hair mm -hmm. and denzel's hair started to fall out yeah. at this point in the shooting and so there's scenes where maybe he has a hat on or there's scenes where we're not quite showing it because he started to have some real hair problems yeah it's a long shoot <laughs> you know one thing also that i noticed about west indian archie that i thought was a little bit of foreshadowing he would look in disdain at Denzel and his evil white woman mm. uh, when they were doing drugs, when he started, when he was feeding her the drugs, uh, mm. I, the look on his face. I know there was like the, the contrast of looking at him with love and then looking at him like mm. he did not seem happy about those two. And he wasn't in the nation, but I thought it was a little foreshadowing. Yeah. 
Um, I think West Indian Archie's a criminal, but I think there is a purity to him. Do you know what I mean? There's an honor, you know, it's the honor thing. And well, and the other thing I'll say too, there's a difference between running the numbers and which is essentially running a casino in a way and being a pimp or a drug dealer or a murderer or or a thief right you know right i actually don't think there's anything dishonorable about running a casino if it's an honest casino and everyone knows the rules and you pay out when you're supposed to (laughs) you know except for the fact that you get murdered if you if you think that you're uh, well, that's the, yeah, that's the other, <laughs> that's the other side of it. Well, and this is about what's about to happen because that number eight, two, one came in and West Indian Archie red says he owes him six big ones, $600. What? Eight, two, one. It hit, didn't it? You didn't have eight, two, one. And we have set up that Archie never forgets a number. Yep. And the turn in the relationship from fatherly figure even fatherly figure that stopped him from hitting this waitress yeah. to having his memory questioned, his reputation question is instant. Yeah. And he pays him off. And, and, and it's funny too, because you can see red, try to walk it back. He does. When, when West Indian reacts the way he does, he, he's like, Oh, let me buy you a drink. What you drinking, man? And I'll drink a piece with you, man. And so it's just like a really strong reaction that he's cut him. He's essentially cutting him off. And cause West Indian Archie is saying, I did all of this for you. I set you up. I got you a new suit. I got you, gave you my gun. I let you do the dry. You know, like I, I gave you a life. I gave you a living. And you're going to call me out about a number in a way that is dismissive as opposed to maybe letting it go, you know, and kind of like he'll pay you when he's ready to pay you or something else, just kind of letting it go. But bringing it up in this way, in a kind of dismissive way or, or condescending way, I think is what was the problem, you know? And see, I thought he walked it back, quote unquote, only after he got the money. Once West Indian Archie put oh. the money on the table, he yeah. started to walk it back. And I didn't think that he was really giving him a break. It felt like he was like, okay, cool. I got my money. Uh, hey, let's change. Let's all be friends again. <laughs> but I didn't feel like he was like, no, no, take the money, he, which he didn't say. Yeah. No, no, you keep it. He said, <laughs> What do you drink? What do you taste in tonight? Yeah, I'm buying. <laughs> yeah, he offers the money back in the next scene, but not in this one. Yeah, not in that. Um, and, and Archie leaves in a, a huff and leaving uh, one of his guys behind, which is Larry McCoy, who always has a fantastic look. To yeah, him, I think he's so good, isn't he, Steve? He stands up and just goes, my man, Ray, what you doing? <laughs> and he tells him, you know, he says, you know, he's going to go check the books because his rep is on the line. You know, it's just there's a delivery here that is so cool and smooth. And this is what's so great about Spike and about the Coen brothers, and about other filmmakers. They have an ability to attract these really great character actors for these moments that stay in your mind. And they are like, he's maybe, maybe tops two minutes of screen time in the whole, <laughs> where he's actually talking. Yeah, two minutes of screen time in the whole movie, maybe five, five, ten minutes in actual appearance screen time. But he is memorable, much more memorable than the other guy, who is also another person, second or third in command there with with uh, Archie. But this is the guy who's got the kind of power. You know, there's a look about him that's so great. His rep is on the line. So is yours. And Red, if you're lying, you're a dead man. Dead, dead. Dude. We're in a club. There's a singer. That singer is supposed to be uh, Billie Holiday. Yeah. Which is another person that uh, Malcolm X knew. 
And it was interesting. And this is just where I love listening to, to craftsmen, to great artists and why they do what they do. The, the costume has uh, these sleeves. It's, it's, it's like a sleeveless dress, but then she has like fabric going up her arms. And that is to cover up the track marks because Billie Holiday's a heroin addict. Right, right. And I think that's Mickey Howard, I think is the, is the singer's oh. name. She was, she was kind of on the fringes of the R&B scene at the time. So Spike giving her a little showcase here was nice. Yeah. And the guy playing trumpet in this scene is Terrence Blanchford, is the uh, composer for the film. Mm. Oh, wow. That's good. Yeah. Mm. And we got Malcolm in a tux with Sophia sitting up front in the club. And a hand comes on his shoulder and we hear Archie say... Didn't I tell you never simply back to my door? Which I, I started doing based on that, by the way. Seeing that, <laughs> I, I swear, I to this day, I, I do the same thing. I, I won't do it. I, I do too. I do too, but it was not, it wasn't this movie. I don't know what it was, but I oh, Karen will say, like, you probably want that seat, right? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> I just like to see the room. I like to That's know what's cool. going on. Sure. You know, John, you mentioned before, like, how incredible Denzel's performance is mm. as you see the inexperience come out. This is another scene. And this is the thing. This is a, it's not a newsflash, but this is a tour de force performance. Oh, yeah. And I put it up against any performance in any epic, including, including Peter O'Toole in Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. I put it up, you know what one I put it up with too, in a weird way is Orson in Citizen Kane mm. because mm. the changes that yeah. this character goes through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The emotional range he has to show, mm-hmm. you know, anger, rage, fear, total despair, yeah. sadness, con- being contrite, being a leader, all the things that he Denzel does is like off the charts incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And in this scene, the fear when he essentially realizes I'm going to die. So it's you and me, huh, Pop? That's right, my friend. You know I'll give you back the 600. I don't want your money. You know I'm wearing Archie. There's three guns on you, so you take your chances, my friend. <laughs> and the thing that sells it for me, and this is all Denzel, according to Spike, this was just something he did, not being able to light that lighter. Mm, so good. It's so little good. Things, the little yeah. things. And they start marching him out, and in the hallway, he pushes like one of the waitresses in the way knocks down a ash can or something through the, through the bathroom, out through the window. It almost feels like he had an escape route plan. Yeah. Like he, he maybe and wouldn't be surprised. Malcolm was smart like that. Yeah. Parkour. It looked like parkour. He was at that window so <laughs> fast. Yep. Um, and he's out in the alley and hiding and breathing heavy and absolutely terrified. Yeah. Spike does not believe that West Indian Archie would have killed him. This really did a version of this really did happen with Archie and the real Archie said he wasn't actually going to kill him. Wow. That's what he said. Let me turn around Archie's comments in the movie. What do you expect her to say, man? What do you expect him to say? Of course. Yeah. (laughs) I would never killed Malcolm X. I mean, you don't admit to that. And and again, and, and I think all of this was in the script. And if not, these are brilliant choices by the editor to go from this low point of Malcolm hiding in the alley where the man who had been a father figure is coming to kill him to cut from that to men with torches and gasoline burning down his house when he was a kid. What, what do you think is the point of this juxtaposition of moments? Why these two together, I guess is what I'm asking. It's a great question, Steve. 
Maybe it's the loss of another father figure. Maybe that's the connective tissue, mm. you know, because him thinking of his father dying and now West Indian Archie, essentially a father figure or mentor, is also now removed from his life. So he's even wilder now. He's even wilder. Um, there's less guidance. So just kind of showing you that um, overall. But there, there might be an even deeper meaning to this or deeper connection to this that I don't quite grasp yet. That's a great uh, question. I, I felt like uh, yeah, things were crumbling for him. Foundations are crumbling. Mm. And uh, foundations are burning down. Foundations are, fa- are falling apart. And I felt like those two, uh, very similar to what John said, those two foundations crumbling mm. brought him from the present to the past. It almost like a trigger for him. And uh, memory-wise, uh, like, oh, I felt like we were in the psyche of, of him for those moments and taken back to the things that he lost. So I, I agree mm. with you, John. Yeah. I think that explanation is fantastic, and it isn't what I was thinking. Right. Um, and what I love about what both of you are saying is that it's his character moment, the loss of the father, yeah. the, the you know everything coming apart, the loss of everything he has. And that is absolutely perfectly correct. And what I was thinking about is the contrast between what brought Malcolm to this point with West Indian Archie mm. and what brought his father to the point with the clan. And that mm-hmm. one is a guy running numbers and working with criminals, and the other is a man standing up for his family and his rights. And that the and that they both lead to these her- terrible places. But that that dad's life, he had a purpose, an honorable purpose, and Malcolm's life at this moment does not. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Well, and again, this is what great films do: is they create moments that give you things to contemplate, to think yeah. about. Yeah. Uh, this scene is terrifying, to say the least. <laughs> you know, I mean, I can't imagine waking up in the middle of the night to my house being attacked and my children under threat, yeah. you know, like this. I thought this was supposed to be a free country. Red, we warned you about all that garbage preaching, steering up to good niggers I am a boy. Next I'm a man. You a dead nigger. A real man don't hide behind no bed sheets. You take these here bullets for them sheets. And he opens fire on them as they ride away. But he wasn't trying to kill them. No. As his wife points out. And one of the moments in this scene is they call him boy. And yeah. then he yells, I'm a man. The I'm a man just calling out into the night. Yeah. Yeah. That is powerful. So many stories of this, too. You know, that's this is just one story, one example of this kind of stuff that went on in our country's history that people want to sweep away and push under the carpet and the only way we heal is to accept it just like in south africa accept it talk about it speak about it openly forgive and move on not hide it you know yep i I also think about what uh both of you had said when we talked about how the teacher talked to malcolm Mm. is that that it was so obvious to him this is just what the world is he what he didn't know what he was saying was horrible yeah the use of the term boy for African-American men, yeah, you know, that a 20-year-old that a punk kid could call a 60-year-old man boy, and yeah. that was just accepted, is, I, I don't have words for it, you know. I mean, that's why Chris Rock's bit about how, you know, you think that the very happy older black guy is like the nicest, black, nicest person in the world. But he was around when there was real racism, where a white person can jump on his back and tell him to take him to town, you know. So he's smiling at you, but when the war comes, you'll be the first one to kill. 
And it's just really funny to explore that because there's the, the, the foundation of the joke is heartbreaking, but the joke itself is meant to kind of ease the wound of the truth of what happened to so many um, uh, black people in this country for decades, uh, generations, you know? And so it's, it's, you know, it's just painful, painful. You know, John, you mentioned the use of the word boy, and it's so yeah. interesting because it's not a curse word. It's not a no. it's not a, a typically vulgar statement, but it's so degrading yeah. and so um, diminishing and condescending. And I thought that it was really interesting that Spike didn't always use the N word that mm-hmm. that used the word boy. And then, as you said, Steve, the calling into the night, I'm a man, it's clearly, I have a really dear friend of mine, dear friend of mine. Yeah. Uh, his name's Andre. I, I, we went to a college together, mm-hmm. Andre Holland. And he he's from Alabama. Right. He would tell me how much he just hated the use of the word boy. or And, and even, you know, going through college, if someone said the word boy in, a, in that way. Yeah. It, 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 it brings up so much. Yeah. And um, seeing him stand with the fire, his house on fire behind him as the backdrop. Gun in the air. I'm a man. I'm a man. We, and then we cut to that wide shot almost to feel the echo and the fullness of him saying, I'm a man. Yeah. It, it is. I am glad, John, that you said that, you know, we should talk about it. We shouldn't mm-hmm. sweep things under the rug. We shouldn't act like. It didn't happen. Right. And and at the same time, you know, we shouldn't make people today. We I don't I feel like it's a disservice mm. and it's diminishing racism to say that you, you that Steve, if uh, you're racist because you're white. Yeah, right. Exactly. Because the real racist people were doing stuff like that. Like th- yeah. that really was yeah. it, it's just watching it. Like I said, had to get emotionally prepared to watch the movie because all those things are tough to see. Yeah. Yeah. And there's real nuance in the conversation. Uh, that's for sure. You know? Um, yeah. And, and there's, you know, obviously there's a deeper conversation to have there, but you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, just because you're white doesn't mean you're racist. Um, but there's a responsibility, you know, that I think people have to be aware of that they carry um, no matter what level they're at to understand the discourse in this country and to understand that, healing is a part of the discourse, not just yelling and screaming. Healing is also a part of yes, it. Yes, healing. Yeah. And I think we we can never, you never, I don't want to uh, minimize mm. the racist, uh, repercu- the racial repercussions that my ancestors suffered to equate certain things that people deem as equal or close to, or in the zip code of the lynchings, the burnings, the uh, all the things that we were seeing in this movie that like I have, as we said were commonplace yeah it, it just it just what it was daily life i can't imagine that being daily life i know i've gone off on a tangent but it's it's deep man like this yeah. this movie brings up stuff yeah i i got i got two things to say one 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 thing is i think the the way we use the word racist is always so difficult because it's t- it tends to be used as a binary like you are a racist or you are not a racist right. rather than there is a big difference between some of the casual racism or microaggressions yeah. or prejudices or or just biases that all of us feel and a dude in a white sheet burning down someone's house like those are not yeah. 
they're a long way away from each other. And, and I wish we had language, you know, that could better differentiate what we're talking about. This, the second thing I wanted to say, because it really just it hit me hard just in this moment is I didn't wasn't witness to a lot of overt hmm. racism against African-Americans growing up. But what I, I did see in exactly this way was uh, racism towards Asians. And so yeah. uh, as a kid, you know, I mentioned before, my mom's side of the family had some money and there were people that worked for them and they were mostly uh, Japanese Americans because this is San Francisco. And so there was a woman who worked for my grandmother for a, I she, certainly from longer than I before I was born. I, maybe she worked for my grandmother for 30 years. I don't know. And my grandmother always referred to this woman as the girl. Yeah. The girl will come and the girl will do this. And, you know, my family was like, you know, Barbara, she has a name. She has a name, you know, like, because we were so bothered by it. And my grandmother was a liberal who would have voted for every single, you know, every single civil rights thing you could possibly imagine. She had no idea that the way that she treated this person was completely dehumanizing. And this was a, she's a 65 year old woman that she's calling the girl. Yeah. Yeah. You know, good point. Or the Oriental. Like uh, my wife's uh, grand grandmother, who loves me, who <laughs> stood up for me, and you know she's conservative, but she would just say, um, "Oh yeah, but, but that Oriental waiter is so he's so nice," and, and then that would be like, "Grandma, you can't call him Oriental, but he is Oriental." I'm like, "No, no, it's crazy how it's just a part of the land. It's just yeah, yeah, the girl, the Oriental. Wow." Well, and this is also why, and I know we're on a digression, but I feel like it's an important digression. I think Barack Obama's speech about race in the 2008 election regards to Reverend Wright, his minister, is one of the most nuanced and beautiful, because he talks about that his grandmother, who his white grandmother, who loved him, used the N-word. Yeah. And he loved her. And he and he's like, this is not simple. This is complicated. It's It's one of the great speeches of all time, in my opinion. I agree. So we've also, uh, in this long conversation, steered away from another absolutely brutal, brutal cut, which is we go from him yelling, I'm a man, yeah. back to him screaming on those train tracks mm. in the moment of his death. By the way, it was super cold the night they were shooting that train track scene. The actor literally was quitting on the second take. <laughs> That's how cold. I mean, it was like freezing cold and they're pouring water on the guy. Spike, I'm a man. I'm not going to freeze to death for your shot. I'm a man, Spike. I would like to have seen that. Get a doctor. He doesn't need a doctor. He needs a preacher. Apparently, Malcolm X's father lived for hours after almost being cut in half by this train. Jesus. Maybe a desire to live, Steve, and Andre, maybe a desire that, his, that he wanted to fight longer, you know, that it, there was still more work to be done. Maybe that's what kept him alive for so many others rather than succumbing to the injuries immediately. I don't know. We cut to Shorty driving a car with Sophia <laughs> and Malcolm sitting in the back seat, and they're talking about their plans and getting back to Boston and all this stuff. And the camera is just staying on Denzel until yeah. we have a freeze frame and the look on his face. I'm not going to say, I know that look, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I know that look. Uh, yeah. I know that fuck it. Look of your twenties, the feral animal look of your twenties that I don't know what I'm going to do next. Look and the lost look and the angry at the world. Look, 
Um, and Denzel captures it all in that one shot. You know, I think the cigarette is dangling and he just looks like, you know, like he's the most dangerous person yep. you could encounter right now. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love the contrast with what we see, the place that this Malcolm is in mm-hmm. and what we hear. And this is, John, what you've alluded to a couple times is we hear Malcolm's voice say, Cats that hung together trying to find a little security to find an answer found nothing. Cats that might have probed space or cured cancer. I mean, West Indian Archie might have been a mathematical genius. We were all victims of the American social order. It's true. Undeniably true. It's still happening today, too. 100%. Uh, it's, so, it's, it's so funny. Like, there's all this talk about uh, the differences between, like, standardized test scores with African Americans versus white folks and stuff. Yeah. And it's like, and everyone goes, well, does this say there's some racial inferiority or some blah, 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 blah. And it's like, look, if you give one school half the money that you give another school and you have, this one has old books and this one has new books and this one has crowded classrooms. And this, what do you expect you're going to see? Yeah. Like with the, the causes are so obvious for these things. Yeah. And yet we want to look at everything, but those causes systematic. This is what the term that people hate so much of systemic racism. It's not saying that the teacher at one school is a racist and the teacher at another school isn't or something. It's saying the system is set up so that one group can advance more easily than another group. Let's get some, do some robberies. (laughs) Okay. Now we got a bit of a gang. Shorty, it's Sophia and Sophia's friend Peg, which is Debbie Mazar. Yeah. Who's seeing lots of stuff later on. And now we need a fourth person. We need Rudy. And here we get, yeah, we saw him as Smiley and do the right thing. Malcolm. <laughs> How ironic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Roger Smith shows up and his opening line, I'm just going to play it, which is, I'm half wop, I'm half nigga, I'm not afraid of nobody. All right. And right away, Malcolm sees this as a threat. <laughs> I tell you what we do, Rudy. Well, I'm a fair man. And I like big head niggas like you. But flip for it. And of course, we all think he's going to flip a coin. Takes out his revolver, pulls out the bullets one by one. Perfect shot, by the way, the bullets in the foreground and him in the background. Yeah. Then, and a lot of this, by the way, is Denzel improvising. A Hmm. lot of this. No surprise. Like putting the bullet in the mouth and licking it. Puts Puts the bullet in the revolver, spins it. This is what flipping it's going to be. I'll flip first, Rudy. Red, cool it. Come on, baby. Head man in charge, right? This scene is terrifying. Andre's done this on sets. It's really unsettling. I've <laughs> 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 seen him do this with executive producers uh, trying to, you know, say more money. Can... <laughs> <laughs> and, and what's so funny is you see they're all trying to stop him and then the put the gun to the head and the first click. All right, we'll believe you. And then he hands it to Rudy. Oh, you didn't you didn't understand how to do it. Let, here, let me show you again. Christ, Red, don't. Rudy doesn't know how to show him. Got to do it again. Right? Red, right, Red, Rudy, stop maybe it. You missed something. You got your eyes open. Gun to the head, and everyone's terrified. And you see, I mean, watch Roger Smith just collapse oh. internally. I love Spike's wild lines the whole time yeah. while he's doing it. They're all shot, but you hear Spike going, "That's really stupid, man." <laughs> oh, stop it, man. Just the whole time. And remember, this is the guy that schooled Malcolm, taught him how to walk, taught yep. him how to conk his hair, taught him to wear the zoot suit. Malcolm has now gone to a whole nother level, and Shorty is along for the ride. And it's crazy. It's crazy. 
and, and this really is all shorty, by the way. You know, we talked about that not yeah. everything, you know, the West Indian Archie kind of became a symbol for a bunch of other stuff. No, he really did meet Shorty when he was 16. Shorty did get him his first Kong. Shorty was working as a saxophone player. Shorty and Shorty was part of this gang that was robbing houses. That's all totally true. You want to do it? So dumb, Red. Nah, you don't, do you? I'll help. Gun to the head, gun to the nose. I mean, it's it's a terrifying, terrifying scene. And then he said, you know, after Rudy has fully, fully given up, he says, Rudy, don't you ever try and cross someone who ain't afraid to die. You hear me? And what's so interesting about the scene is it's terrifying. It's crazy. And you also, I think this is where you actually start to see the power that this guy has. Yeah. That Malcolm can hold. Yeah. But also Sophia is like super turned on. So you understand that this, it's always been the power dynamic and that she's maybe always sensed that there's something in him that is, that has this kind of power, which is why she was drawn to him for so long, you know? Can I tell you though, I thought that when he said that someone who's not afraid to die, I was like, this has got to be a con because we just saw him terrified to die, run through, run and jump through a window. Yeah. To avoid dying. And then it turned out, not that I'm this brilliant guy, but I was like, wait a second. He was just so scared to die (laughs) that it didn't quite click. But then it, then it became clear. Well, and then oh, so, well, and here's the thing we're going to see in the next scene because Shorty's going to go, come on, what happened to the bullet? And he pulls out the bullet that he had pocketed, he yeah. palmed, and is laughing. Here's my question. Sophia, who in the previous scene was so turned on, yeah. does she know he palmed the bullet? Oh, I don't know. No, I don't think she does. I don't think she does. Yeah. I think it is his willing to face death that is part of the turn on. Yeah. Oh, so so in the next scene, we're going to go do some robberies and they're robbing this guy that I guess Rudy had worked for. And we see them kind of taking off their shoes as they go into the house. So, <laughs> by the way, they, they you know, movies shoot long hours and directors are frequently working well beyond the hours that everyone else on the crew is working because they're watching dailies or they're doing <laughs> and Andre's going, going yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, but the other person, one of the other people who's working so many long hours is cinematographers. Cinematographers never, ever stop working. Yeah. And Ernest Dickerson, the night before they shoot this, his first son was born. Oh, oh nice. so he was up all, all oh, night in the shit. hospital. Really? Ooh. And then came to set and apparently he fell asleep in the middle of the take. <laughs> and the thing was, is that when Spike was on camera, the second director was Ernest Dickerson, you know, right. because he was the one who had to be able to say it was good. And he was just like, and Spike comes up after the take. He's like, well, how was that? And totally lied. He's like, oh, it's great. It's great. Oh, fantastic. It's really good. Best thing you've ever shot. <laughs> my first daughter was born while shooting. And my second daughter was born while I was in the voice of her booth. So I was just remembering actually like how tired I was when you said that. So they robbed the house. And by the way, the moment of pulling the ring off the sleeping guy's finger. Oh, so good. It's like, dude, leave it. <laughs> leave the ring. Yeah. We're back getting another conk, and you see the contrast between Malcolm getting his first conk mm. and this guy who's like rock solid. Yeah. His ability to deal with the pain. And then what we're in is the camera's on them, and then the camera does a full 360 looking around the room, seeing all the stolen goods. Yeah. Andre, can you picture what's happening on set if you have to do a full 360 <laughs> camera move? Golly. The complication, the level of complexity. And, and just the sheer effort is so high. There's a lot of brain power. I, I think people don't understand. They think, oh, you just call action and cut when you're directing yeah. a movie. 
there, there's so much you have to be aware of and so much you have to see in advance, so much you have to plan out. Something like this, it takes a lot of planning. And then to, to think that if you're on camera for most of the movie too, yeah, you're not not even necessarily in your rhythm. So it, it's a it's a big gargantuan task well and the thing too is you picture that whatever the crew the crew is behind the camera so sound people and you know the camera crew like all these people are behind the camera so if the camera is moving 360 they're all running 360 yes around behind yes. the camera to stay yes. out of the shot yeah you know yeah and if it's one the- c-stand or one person moves a little bit too slow you guys start over yeah. yep you can't cut into i mean i guess you could but the whole point is to try and get it. And so we we circle around and we come back and it's getting time to get the conch out. Okay, it's starting to heat up a bit. Go over to the sink. No water. <laughs> Go into the, you know, into the fridge trying to find some no water. Go into the bathroom, another sink, no water. The bathtub, no water. And what's funny is this scene is kind of it is it manages to be for me both really stressful and funny. And then the moment of looking into the toilet bowl and going, I'm going to have to stick my head in the toilet. Huh. I, you can't get a better rock bottom, you know, metaphor. Yeah. Then I'm putting my head into where shit goes. Mm-hmm. And in this moment, as he's washing his head in the toilet, we hear, Hey, nigga, take your head out of this shit ball. And the cop there is Nicholas Totoro. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, I had forgotten that. And they've already grabbed Shorty, and, we, and who says... Red, the jig is up. How do you think the jig was up here? Because, I mean, the next shot we're going to get to is them being in court and whatever, but, like, do you think they followed the girls? Do you think the girls shot their mouths off? Do you think it was Roger Smith who turned them all in? Well, there's two questions, because I could tell you exactly what happened because okay. I read the book, but, okay. but, but what do you think in terms of the movie? Yeah, I just think Roger did it. Roger was like, I'm going to show you bullets, motherfucker, and then turned them all in, got them all in trouble. So he's the one guy who got away, by the way. Of he, course he did. He left town. He did not turn them in. Oh. Malcolm describes himself as completely, completely out of control at this point. Oh, Drugs. He's just completely lost it. He goes into a bar and see. And Sophia, by the way, is, I believe, married at this point. Mm. So she is married to a white guy, but running crimes with Malcolm and Shorty and Peg. Um, and the white guy, I believe, that she's married to is this is during world war ii so he's in the military right um and he walks into a bar malcolm does this is my memory from the book walks in the bar and sees sophia sitting with a white guy which is i believe the brother of the guy she's married to yeah and he says what any smart person would do is just turn around and walk out Mm -hmm. but he was so strung out and so angry and sleep deprived that he walked right up to the table and started talking to sophia making it really obvious that he knew her The brother of the white guy came to this house to try to kill Malcolm <laughs> at one point, and then that's the guy who called the police. Oh, I believe so the husband I believe called that. the police. The, the brother, brother of the husband. Oh, the brother. The of the husband. All right, that's what I believe. Oh. Uh, we're in a trial. The judge in this trial is William Kunstler, who yeah. is a famous civil rights attorney, defended the Black Panther. This is the guy who defended the Chicago Seven. Yeah. Um, wow. And Jim Morrison. Oh, and Jim, oh, I didn't realize he defended Jim Morrison. Yep. He's also a judge in the doors to Jim oh, Morrison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. 
The average first offender gets two years for burglary. We were all first offenders, so that's what Sophia and Peg drew. Two years in the woman's reformatory at Framingham. But our crime wasn't burglary. It was sleeping with white girls. And then, you know, Spike weaves in comedy <laughs> with this thing because the judge starts reading off all these counts of eight to ten years and says all the sentences should be served concurrently. And Shorty thought didn't know what concurrently meant, so he thought he's going to have to serve 100 years and he faints, which is true, by the way. That did happen. <laughs> it meant a minimum sentence of 10 years hard labor at the Charlestown State Prison. The date was February 1946. You remember, by the way, I told you that uh, Malcolm was actually much younger than Denzel appears, that he was yeah. 16 when he first started up at Roseland. He was 20 when he was sentenced to prison. Wow. Wow. So all this had happened between the ages of 16 and 20. Wow. Uh, I also mentioned that Ernest Dickerson had several different looks for the film. Mm. We went from that really warm kind of nostalgic look into a more subdued look. And now we're going to go to a much cooler look. Yeah. All those warm tones are now gone. You know, we're getting blues and greens. Mm -hmm. And again, this is the planning of filmmaking. You know, this is thinking you got to think ahead. We're in prison and it's his first night. And this is the first moment we see Baines. Um, and the guards ask him to give his number. He refuses. So read it right there, boy. Dana, can't you read, boy? Fuck yes, no! And they hit him and they take him away to the hole. Well, and before that scene, we see Baines talking to another mm. black prisoner who is, you know, betting the fa- on the fact that Malcolm's going to break and Baines can already see he's never going to, he's, he's not going to give them the pleasure. He's not yeah. going to break. He's going to be strong. And this is the great Albert Hall. And I love this character in this movie and it breaks my heart with what happens to him later on in the movie, what he does <laughs> to Malcolm. But like, this is yet another father figure coming into Malcolm's life mm-hmm. at a certain time you know, and someone who sees something in him, um, sees the potential of him. Right. And I would argue the teacher at the beginning, near the beginning of the movie is a bit of a father figure as well, because he's there teaching him. He's just giving him the wrong information to aspire to. And, but he's there to kind of guide the kid and try to help him in what he thinks, he, how he thinks the world works. And then of course, with Cindy and Archie, and now we have this, uh, a new mentor father figure type of thing so very very interesting but Baines immediately because he's our first he's an, another new character we're seeing it's a great decision by spike to after we've just seen malcolm pull this stuff get arrested get put in jail rightfully so for what he did he immediately elicits sympathy from the viewer by presenting us with someone who is standing upright strong power and conviction in saying the words he's saying about malcolm so now we've taken on the point of view of this person about Malcolm right from the jump as he goes into prison. It's smart. So smart. I didn't put this together until just as you're saying this, John, yeah. you just made something click in my head. Cause I hadn't thought about putting the teacher in this group of father figures, oh, yeah. but particularly I haven't read the book that he absolutely was, yeah. you know, this was his favorite teacher who then, and what I suddenly went like, Oh, this whole movie is a series of father figures mm-hmm. betraying him. Including, yeah. of course, the most important being the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Yes. You know, yes. Is yes. that it is one father figure after another that turns on Malcolm. And that may be why he always goes back to his father, who he saw mm. as the purest, who did not turn on him. Yes. yes. So, who died I, for him. Yes. Yeah, wow. Who died for him. Yes. Yes. That's yeah. Andre. It is so, it's so, again, this is what makes great films. 
Yep. You know, I've watched this movie many times and this is just, now I'm seeing things in a new way. Yeah. Ditto. The directorial choice to make the sequence in solitary confinement entirely black. Yeah. With just the slit of light with that coming from blasting through, through that opening Hmm. is incredible. Time's up, little. Now state your number. Suit yourself. Ten more days. Denzel loves his solitary confinement scenes like hurricane this and hurricane yeah this and Mm. hurricane are two great scenes water and then we hear water coming in kind of he's fighting for the water and we can't see what's happening exactly yeah and then someone comes and offers him a cigarette you want to smoke and it is christopher Plummer. (laughs) random (laughs) apparently spike lee continually peppered him with questions about sound of music (laughs) Christopher Plummer wouldn't answer any of them. No, because Plummer's not, you know, Plummer's like, it's a film I did decades ago. That's how he is about that movie. Yeah. People love that movie. Plummer's like, I did it decades ago. It's fine. You know, he, yeah. he hates to be asked about it. I just think that's hilarious, particularly in this film, to be asking about that film. Yeah. Right. Good point. You know what a friend you have in Jesus, son. And the venom, the anger, the rage that comes out of Malcolm at this time about jesus is powerful he's a friend huh chappy well if he's such a friend where is he huh what he done for me um by the way and it kind of gets mentioned but it's 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 hard to pick up on but his nickname in prison actually was satan that's what everyone called him wow because of his red hair or what no i think it's because of his anger oh fair at the the beginning um and maybe from moments like this what he done for me chappy huh What has he done for me? He ain't done nothing for me. There's this other moment where now we have kind of two slats of light open up. Oh, it just is stunning visually. Yeah. To me, it feels like, I don't know about you, Andre, but to me, it feels like a director making a choice visually of a guy in transition who is stuck between heaven and hell. Mm. Just, Love it. just there mm. in the middle between the utter darkness and the light, you know? And I, I think that's really accurate, and I never thought about it like that. But when you look at the coloring, you look at the, even the position of the lighting, kind of being a middle frame and, and where he is, it's it's completely plausible yeah. that that is what he was thinking. That's a great a great observation. Um, that's fantastic, John. Um, and again, cinematography yeah. is definitely not my line, but I just want to point out to do something like this. This is math. This is math. Now I don't know if they had video assist. On this movie, you know, some movies did at this point, some movies didn't. But even if you're looking at it through a monitor, you cannot see whether or not this effect you're trying to create is working because the the levels aren't exactly the same that come through a video monitor than what's being recorded on film because film has its own it's, – it's a chemical process. Hmm. It's not an electronic process. And so what you have to do is you have to know exactly what stop, which means you take your light meter and see what stop the light is is at and what is the contrast between the light coming in through that thing and the ambient light and it has to be an exact level of steps between the two to get exactly the effect that you want and you can't know that you got exactly the effect you want until you develop the film you know this is hard it's 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 so hard i i just want to say that i don't want to minimize directors now but Mm. shooting digitally it's oh, yeah. so much easier. Like the, the shooting on film, it's just night and day. It's real craftsmanship. 
Yeah. Everything you just said, like if you you cannot waste a strip of film. You know how much it costs if you blow that whole scene to go back and reshoot all that on film? It's crazy. <laughs> well, and, and the level of unknowns. Well, and particularly, you know, before, and I remember, John, we talked, we actually talked about the person who invented video assists is one of your heroes. Do you remember who it is? Um, isn't it Jerry Lewis? It's no. Jerry Lewis. Yeah, Jerry Lewis. Yeah. I mean, he didn't actually invent it, but he's the person who made it happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, is that I can't imagine, you know, back in, and, and they didn't have light meters in the silent era. Yeah. It was just dudes who looked and went, I think it's about this. Yeah. Like it's, a, it's amazing how people could make movies under those circumstances. <laughs> um, and then just the, uh, he literally becomes an animal in the next moment. <laughs> just the sounds coming out of him are animalistic. The vocal choice that he made not to go full voice, yeah, but not mm-hmm. to go complete whisper, to, to cough, like just the, the, the little cough that he had. You know, I, I don't believe that Spike was like, make sure you cough here. Like, I think Denzel <laughs> came up with that. You know, those little details are just mind-blowing. The door opens. He's on the floor. They ask his number. He says his number. They take him out. He is now out of solitary. He's in the shower. He's got the conch in his hair. And now, and John, you mentioned we met him before. Up comes Baines, Albert Hall. And I think his performance is incredible. I think the sequence is incredible. And you remember when I told you that I felt this movie was really accurate in terms of its depiction of Malcolm's life, but there was one thing they changed that I half love and half don't. Okay, And that is there is no Baines. Yeah, there's no Baines. He's an amalgamation of a number of people. Yeah. What? Yeah. There, yeah. Yeah. Does not exist. There was a guy he met named Bimbi mm-hmm. in his first prison. And Bimbi, who was not a Muslim, but was an educated person and had a lot of power, definitely turned him towards studying, not towards studying Islam, but studying. Mm-hmm. The way he actually got involved in the nation of Islam is because two of his brothers had joined the nation before him. And they started writing letters. To him in prison and visiting him in prison that's how he got involved with the nation of islam yeah but you don't present that an hour and 15 minutes into the movie because you haven't made these brothers come to life in any way shape or form before then so it would it wouldn't have made sense so i understood why spike because i remember reading this years ago that baines wasn't real uh, I, I i ended up looking at what actually happened and i think it was smart of spike to give us one person who was kind of encompassing all these people who influenced and guided Malcolm towards this path to become a black Muslim. And, um, and Albert Hall is such a great actor to choose to do that. And we'll see that basically he, he tied, you know, it's often when you're doing a movie about someone's real life and real experience, but you, you add a character in. Yeah. There's a lot of things you need to tie together, thread together. I should say that maybe don't, fall on the place cinematically um and it's not it's no coincidence and you know we'll go through it obviously but uh this character who's made up is really important to the overall cinematic theme mm. uh character arcs and, and ups and downs uh of malcolm x i think it's absolutely the right choice i mean that you know reading six letters from your brother is not dramatic 
<laughs> right, having yeah. conversations with a person is like this is i mean and, and it's fantastic it's amazing and albert hall is incredible in it comes up and the first thing he does is offer him nutmeg you need something to get the monkey off your back it's not cocaine but it'll help some by the way, nutmeg was a regular thing to get high that Malcolm used when mm-hmm. he was in prison. He also got weed, coke, all sorts of things. He was doing all sorts of drugs in prison. Wow. Uh, and strangely enough, there's still lots of drugs in prison. Hey, this ain't bad. You got some more? That's the last fix I'm giving you. So what you give it to me, boy, then, huh? Because you needed it. Because you couldn't hear me without it. Everything Albert Hall does in this scene is brilliant. And I love that the script is great. It's just so powerful. I think you've got more sense than any cat in this prison. Why the hell don't you use it? You can't bust out of here like they do in the movies. Because even if you get out, you're still in prison. And what's so interesting to me is that Malcolm only has his own language and his own way of thinking to talk to this guy. You go busting your fist against a stone wall. You're not using your brain. That's what the white man wants you to do. And this is the first, strangely enough, even though we've seen the Klan and we've seen some horrible racism, this is the first real reference to the white man as a unified group, as a body, which is something that's thematic throughout the film, which as a white guy I have strong feelings about. But I think it's key to what he's trying to teach him in this scene. Yeah. Look at you, putting all that poison in your head. I think you've been in prison too long, my man, because everybody on the outside counts. Why? Why does everybody on the outside count? Because they don't want to walk around with a nappy head looking like Looking you. like what? Like me? Like a nigger? Why don't you want to look like what you are? What makes you ashamed of being black? Um, something I don't know, because there's an evolution in how uh, African-Americans referred to themselves. And there was a time, I do know, where someone being called black was insulting. Yes. And I don't know when that time, when, like, what was the nature of someone calling someone black in 1946 or 47? Like, what was the feeling about that at that time? I don't know. Let me tell you something, I'm not ashamed of being anything. And he goes to turn on the shower to wash the conk out of his hair. And again, much like when he was about to hit that woman in the bar... Now another father figure grabs his hand and stops him. You better get your hands off me. I got to wash this out. Let it burn. Nigga, get your hands off of me. Go on. Burn yourself. Pain yourself. Put all that poison in your hair, in your body, trying to be white. What do you think Malcolm is thinking of this guy at this moment? How much has it affected him, I guess, is my question. I think that this is the first time we see Malcolm start to consider his blackness in a way that is different from how he's viewed it all up until this point in his life. I think up until this point in his life, it's been viewed as something he's had to deal with on how the white people have treated him. Yeah. But this is the first time I feel like it's been positioned as how do you, how do you feel about you being black? Not to how white people feel about you being black. Yeah. It's, it's facing his perceived self hatred and self self loathing. Yeah. And I think that he, even though he's brushing him off, I think he's really thinking about, I think this starts turning the pages for him on this book uh, of transformation. Are you just another one of those cats strutting down the avenue in your clown suit with all that meth on you, looking like a monkey? The white man sees you and laughs. He laughs because he knows you ain't white. Man, who are you? No, the question is, who are you? 
he is preaching this idea that there, you have been made to feel ashamed of who you are. And remember, this is what, the 50s, 40s, late 40s, 50s? Um, this is also something that becomes very powerful in the 1970s as well, across the entire uh, Black experience and the conversations that are having happening amongst a lot of um, films that are coming out in the 1970s, Black films, uh, the, the uh, discourse that's happening. You know, the Black Panthers, all of that kind of opening the door. You know, even Tupac had a song about, you know, Marvin Gaye used to, oh no, uh, who was it? Marvin Gaye used to me, he had me feeling like black was the thing to be. I think that's Tupac, I think. Uh, who's, yeah, yeah, Tupac who sings about that. This idea of wanting to find pride in being black because the society has many, many examples to show you how you should be ashamed of being black or a person of color you know, more overtly black, because that seems to be the the top two uh, groups in the battle here. But people of color are made to feel inferior constantly in a white-dominated society because of, whether intentionally or unintentionally, because of media, because of presentation, because of how their poorer areas of the world are covered, you know, all these kinds of things. They say inner city, and you know what that means. That means people of color. It doesn't mean white people, even though they do live in inner cities as well. They don't go into the trailer park areas. They don't say shit like that. You know, they don't say shit like it's always inner city. That's the buzzword. Um, when there are plenty of poor white areas in this country that they never reference or speak about in the same kind of terminology or frequency that they do inner cities. Uh, and so it's, it's those kinds of things that you see that it's sub, both subconscious and conscious. That's an effort to keep you feeling ashamed of being a person of color. And certainly I went through a few years of that. Um, uh, because I was made to feel ashamed of being, well, I allowed myself to feel ashamed about being Latino and wanted to be more white in my late teens and in my early twenties, you know, and, and that's where you, I didn't want to speak Spanish. Uh, I didn't want my parents to speak Spanish around me in public places. It was a really weird time. And then eventually you understand you have your own kind of coming out party about it and watching this film really solidified that, you know, and it's great what's happening the back and forth with them here about this. And, Spike is entertaining you and educating you at the same time. I'm th- I imagine there are a lot of people who watch this movie at a young age who maybe were like oh, made aware by the back and forth between um, uh, Baines and Malcolm that this is a thought process they never had about their own color, about their own existence in this world. I think you make a, a really great point. And, I, and the thing to me is I think it's really important to acknowledge that you don't have to agree with everything that is said in a right. film. Yes, to benefit from the conversation and to learn from it. Yeah. You can learn from things that you disagree with. Yeah. I don't agree that all white people are devils. Right. You know? Right. Yes. Um, and, and in fact, I will make this disclaimer at this time. Like I will say that anytime you put a group of people and you make a judgment about them as a whole yeah. is wrong. And I don't mean just that it's morally wrong. I mean that it is incorrect. Yeah. People, there is no such thing. And, and and I can tell you, and I hope that everyone listening will believe me, if there is some grand conspiracy of white people to that all of us know that we're trying to keep the black man down, nobody told me about it. <laughs> like, I have not been informed about this. Yeah. Like, those, you know, like, there are terrible, terrible acts of, you know, racism throughout the world. But it is not all, it is not all, all white people are not the same, you know? Just like all think, black people aren't the same. Yeah. I'm so glad you say that because I, I've never felt that way. Mm. But I catch flack for not feeling that way. 
Mm. I catch, uh, you know, maybe John may, what's that? Yeah. 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 But, but essentially because, you know, like we said, this is a political film. Yeah. There is the generalization that all liberals are one way and all conservatives are one way. We've said, Mm -hmm. I've even heard on this episode, you know, we talk about conservatives think how liberals think. And, and, and I think that it's not all the same. Mm-hmm. And I even said like, oh, white people doing this and racism, racist. It's not all the same. I, and I think we should really work on not generalizing people into these categories, starting with us, not just us, but starting with the sensible people to lay the groundwork for the non-sensible people, because <laughs> it's dangerous to generalize and it becomes a habit. And it, and I think generalization has been weaponized nowadays. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. I had, can I, can I share with you a, what I was a very illuminating conversation I had with my 10 year old son yesterday. <laughs> and, and just, cause I've been thinking about it is that I, I made some joke about, you know, Oh, cause his birthday's coming up in a few months. And I said, Oh, what do you want? You know, you want a new car in the, you know, do, cause I was just making up ridiculous things that he might get for his 11th birthday. <laughs> and I said, do you want a pony? And he said, dad, why do people, why is it always that girls want ponies? Why is that in every story and every cartoon? Why is it always girls want ponies? Not all that's sexist. My 10 year old son says, wow. Um, well, he's been raised in this, you know, in a oh, very yeah. kind of open-minded sort of world. And I kind of went, you're, you know, you're right. And what I, but I said, I said, but I bet if you walked around and asked a lot of the girls in your class, there would be more girls in your class that were into horses and ponies than weren't. And so what we started talking about was like, there are things that we can say, like, is there more roughhousing among boys than there is of girls? Yes. Does that yeah. mean all boys want to roughhouse or all girls don't want to roughhouse? No. Right. It's the difference between saying, yeah, there's some stuff we can say about different cultures, but those are generalizations. Yeah. They do not mean that everyone within that culture is going to reflect that thing, nor should they, mm-hmm. you know? And like, and that's a nuanced way to have a conversation like that is, I think... If that if that makes sense, I'm not you know because I agree with you. We absolutely generalization has been weaponized. Yeah, but there are some things that you know, like John, you've said things about Latinos yeah. and Latino culture. I've said things about Jews and Jewish culture, and not all Latinos do exactly the things that you describe. Not all right. Jews are you know fit the description that I describe, but they're right. generalizations that to some degree fit. Does that make sense? Am I saying yeah, that? Yeah, well? no, I, I agree. Now that's part of what I'm saying too is that some of the things are true, but they're not bad. But I right. think because some of these things are true and it involves more than one or two people, we suddenly think that it's a generalization with, that is a negative thing. I yeah. think there are cultural similarities amongst people within a culture that we can point to and observe and say this is true yeah. most of the time. But doing that does not make me racist or sexist. It just makes me observant. You are lost in the darkness. But Elijah Muhammad has come to bring you into the light. Hmm? Elijah Muhammad can get you out of prison, out of the prison of your mind. But maybe all you want is another fix. You'd say we're we're about in Act Two now, or yeah, or, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that that's why I feel like this movie, the three hours, are just the three major phases of his life, and I, I thought the way that it was carved out was really interesting. Um, I, I looked at, I'm always curious to look at time when, when, when I'm in a movie, him being sentenced to prison is almost to the second one hour into the film. Yeah. So we're in the metal shop. This was shot in a real prison. Um, and we see Baines having a conversation 
a very open conversation. And we see not only his power with these other people around him, but we see that he has no problem, no fear talking to the guards. Hmm. And more importantly, Malcolm sees this. And by the way, this is very much what Bimbi, the not Muslim guy that Malcolm admired, was like. You're the only cat in this prison I don't seen to act the way you do. You ain't, even, you ain't even afraid of talking like that in front of them guards or nothing. What's he going to do to me he hasn't done already? And Malcolm, again, is going like, this is some sort of a game. I want to understand your game because that's what he's needed to do yeah. throughout his life up to uh, this point. Figure out what the game is. Yeah. Yeah, I know you got to angle some kind of way. Don't con me. Don't con me and don't try. So we're out in the prison courtyard. And this, of course, was shot in a real prison courtyard. And this, this is where we start to hear about the rules. Because the first thing a black man must have is respect for himself. Respect his body and his mind. Quit taking the white man's poisons into his body. His cigarettes, his dope, his liquor, his white woman, his pork. Pork? Yes, Andre? <laughs> white women. I can give up the pork and everything, but come on. Come on, Allah. <laughs> You you and Shorty, man. Shorty can't give up the white women either. Um, well, and you remember I said that thing about that that his mom said you shouldn't eat pork. So this connects with him. All right, good point. You know, from there. Uh, your mama was right. That pig is a filthy beast. Part rat, part cat, and the rest is dog. I don't know, man. That bacon is good. I love, yeah. I, <laughs> I always find it funny that what society says, whoa, whoa, you can't have, you can't do that. You know, <laughs> and and what's so interesting about the scene is that Malcolm is still kind of going, this is some kind of con because he's like, okay, so am I going to get out on a medical if I do all that? <laughs> like when I was on the outside, I ran this hustle. I tried to act I'm like telling you God's words, not no hustle. One of the most quotable lines from the movie, I, I say it all the time. Like in my head, or or like just sometimes to people. I love it. I'm telling you, God, God's words, not no hustle. It's a strong thing. I love that line. What do you What do you think it means? What is it? Why does it sit with you so powerfully? I, I think it, it 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 indicates a lot of things, right? Um, we are so cynical in our world, and rightly so, because so many things we've believed in have lied to us, have. Uh, um, let us down, have screwed us over for their own benefits, whether it's country, person, family, friend, significant other. We've seen it happen in our lives. So we can immediately be like, oh, you know, they've got some angle. Or when you hear something that's too good to be true, it's got some angle. So he's saying, I'm telling you something that's the unvarnished truth, which of course is tragic when later, you know, he turns on him. But it's that moment of like, here, this is going to pierce through your perceptions, your cynicism, your uh, feelings of not being able to. This is something you can trust. Trust me. This is something that won't let you down. I'm telling you God's words, not no hustle. I don't take it to the religious place. I take it to the uh, authenticity place. And I think that's why it's it sits with me as much as it does. You know what's weird about the line that it makes me think of is yeah. – um, it may, maybe this is the atheist coming in, of course. But but the line that it makes me think of is Fight Club. How's that working out for you? Being yeah. clever. Yeah, because out? Malcolm's always looking for an angle. Yes. He's looking for a smart – and an angle means doing a thing to get something that you didn't quite deserve. You know what I mean? It's to get something without putting in the work and the time and the effort that everybody else is going to put in. Yeah. You know? this And that to me, even though I don't believe in God, it's not – life isn't a hustle, you know? Yeah, well, and, and sometimes, though, 
when you're coming from a place of poverty and stuff, this is the way to survive is to find sure. the angle is to find the, the way to get to a certain position just to survive. It's not even about screwing people over. It's more about like survival. And so, yeah, I, I hear you though. The angle is, but, but some people do play the angle in a negative way. I hear you. Well, and if society is cheating against you, mm. all you got, you got to hustle to get even to make things even. That line also hits me, John. And it hits me when I look at it in its entirety, you know, obviously without jumping too far ahead, it's the consistent that for me, unapologetic, you know, I know you're atheist, but I'm unapologetically God fearing. I, I believe in God. I'm, you know, I'm a Christian. And you always see where it's not the God part that fails people. It's the people part that fails. Yes. It's the man-made right. imposed religion part that fails but in this instance, you know, and, and that's when we, you know, obviously we'll talk about it later on, but he says that line with such conviction, but he's a human being and he, and he fell. <laughs> yep. Well, in the next line, I bet there were millions of people who's heard this next line and had exactly the reaction that Malcolm did. I'm going to tell you, God is black. God is black. <laughs> Everybody knows God is white. Everything the white man taught you, you accepted. Baines is such a great, great character, man. So good. And the thing is, it's like, we, we all have this image of what Jesus looks like. Yeah. So the straight kind of blonde brown hair, this, you know, angler. Because we've seen all these pictures and statues that were painted and sculpted by this bunch of people that lived a thousand years after Jesus. Did. We don't have any photos of Jesus. And I had that photo, the one they, sh they, they cut to. That mm. was hanging above our, in our second sure. floor of the house. As I walked up the stairs, there was that picture of Jesus Christ, dead center on the wall, the white version of Jesus Christ, you know, with the beautiful really hair white, and huh? the beard. Yeah, oh, of course it was. In in my household, you know, it was that. And, and let's take a moment. I know I didn't say I was going to talk too much, but let's take a moment. Like, <laughs> this is what, 1992? This stuff now is very much spoken about in a regular basis in the mainstream world, right? In 1992, this is beyond revolutionary to have this in a film teaching people about the stuff that black people have known in their culture uh, or uh, the um, black Muslims repeat preaching and trying to get people to understand. Just think about that in 1992, that that is breaking through people's perceptions of God. How many people walk out of the theater and did research and were like, Oh my God! Yeah, he's not white. He was came from the Middle East. He's brown skinned. It's ridiculous what they fed us. How many people's lives and minds were changed, and how many still see this movie and have their minds and perception changed about how they are pitched religion as a predominantly white thing? And it's because it's pitched by a predominantly white society. All the apostles are white. All the you know Jesus is white. All those things. And the truth is, that's not how it was. And in fact, some of the refugees and the immigrants that you're kicking out of this country or being mad or coming over this country, they're what Jesus Christ and the apostles look like. And so those are those things you just kind of have to like really consume in your mind. You know, he wasn't blonde hair and blue eyed hanging out. Chad hanging out at the fucking <laughs> club at Harvard. He's like Jesus is a whole other thing. So, and you know what? There, there's nothing wrong with blonde hair, blue eyes, white people. White people are great. <laughs> no, I, of course, of course. I, I love white people. I do. I, Steve, Thanks, I love Andre. You. Thank you. I love you, man. I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say to John's point, as great as white people are, especially to Mary, um, that <laughs> this movie, it did prompt me 
because I was younger. Right. I'm younger than you guys. I, I, it prompted me to look and like, oh, wait a second. The people from this region had a flat nose, had skin the color copper, had coarse hair. This isn't Chad from the skate park. Right. <laughs> well, and the thing, too, is like <laughs> two things say one's kind of silly. But it's like if you look at it's the same as true. If you look at all those films about ancient Rome and gladiators oh, yeah, yeah. or the ancient Greeks, it's like, well, I've seen what people from Greece look like and I've seen what Italians look like. And they don't look like Anthony Hopkins. You know what I mean? Like, that's one thing. The other one, this just always cracks me up, is when someone sees a face in a thing and they go, that's the face of the Virgin Mary. And it's like, you don't know what the Virgin Mary looked like. That could be (laughs) the Virgin Mary's Aunt Matilda. Like, it's just, you're seeing a face. There's millions in my pancakes. I saw it in my pancakes. (laughs) Um, But, (laughs) so, I think we've made pretty clear that that baines has is on to something with this yeah. god is not white thing did you ever look up the word black in a dictionary for what did you ever study anything that wasn't part of some con what the hell for man and this moment is another that was a revelation mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and because and by the way this is just noah webster's dictionary that spike yeah. lee did not he didn't set this up this is what it said and it's a particular edition of the dictionary we have this moment it starts with baines reading the definition of black Black, destitute of light, devoid of color, hence utterly dismal or gloomy, as the future looked black, foul, sullen, hostile, forbidding, as a black day, foully or outrageously wicked, as black cruelty. Mm. 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 Can can I just say, there's two things I want to say here about this. I want to say that it is so true that black was always growing up depicted as this terrible thing. Yeah. You know, it, even thematically in films, the black hat is the cowboy. The black yeah. cat is bad luck. I remember asking my dad, why is a black cat bad luck? Why? What did the black cat do? So, oh, it's just superstition. But it's curious to me mm. that these little things, and I don't, I, I see, I don't think it's like, oh, here's this big plan to make everything black bad so that everyone thinks black is bad. I think people are just idiots. And I think they just really believed that everything black was bad at some point. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I, I'm just shocked how it was uncontested for so long. Yeah. Well, and, and, and look, what does black symbolize as well? Black is darkness. Black is fear. Black is something I don't understand. Black is something I can't see. I don't have my senses when I'm enveloped in black. There's so much about black that people fear and subconsciously on like multiple levels all the way down. There's a lot of fear when it comes to the idea of black or we're trained to be afraid. I mean, almost all horror, right? The jump scares are in black coming out of, of the course. darkness. And, and so it's and nighttime. We're afraid at night. Yeah, you're right. Well, this is where that's where I think it comes from. I think it yeah. comes from just organically, like if you're gonna write about the scary story, well, is it on a beautiful sunny day or is it a <laughs> dark and stormy night? Yeah, you know, right, exactly. And so and so like I think that that happened naturally, and then it over time grew and encompass and, and what what I think is so terrible, and this just goes to unconscious bias, is even if there's no intention behind it, if you continually read negative things that are dark, that warps your brain yeah, yeah. into seeing something that is dark and thinking of it negatively. It yeah. you know the, it like reverses the polarity in your brain, so now you perceive that that way. You know, 
Yeah. Can, can I, I, I want to say something that John will probably remember, and this goes a bit deeper than, than the surface. There was a time where when all, when these movies were coming out and like it was resurging uh, at Florida state, there was a time where I dyed my hair platinum blonde yes. and wore blue contacts. I remember that. Yep. And wow. at first it was, you know, George Judy, the director at the time, he thought it'd be really cool for Hamlet. We're doing a, a, a Versace version of Hamlet. But the but the response I got, I kept it. And I remember thinking that when I took them out, I, I take my contacts out and my girlfriend at the time, she she said to me, you know, I really just love your dark eyes. And I was like, really? But they're they're brown. And and I, even me, I, I dyed my hair yeah. blonde. Platinum dyed my facial hair platinum, yeah. and uh, to to be what I thought was the better the better look the better fit. And it wasn't until it be, and this is how long it took me. Yeah, when I had my kids, I remember thinking at one point, oh, you know, I'm going to go back to my gray contacts. But I thought, no, I don't want my kids thinking that the eyes that they have are less than right as an adult. So this thing goes it goes way far back. Oh, yeah. And it and it really does manifest itself in different ways. And I just wanted to point that out because when we talk about all these things that were the black and this and this and that, but then we talk about the like I said, the response I got when I was apparently more white and my personality was already more white, it just goes to show you how we people yearn for acceptance and it may not even be outward. I wasn't like pleading for it. I didn't need it. I just something I did. And I'd be curious, John, what, what you saw back then, if you even oh, remember. Oh, God. No, I mean, we, it, I, I, it's college. So you're going to experiment, you're going to try things. And so the, but the blue context, I remember that we as friends had conversations about it at times about it, about you with the blue context, because we were like, why is he doing this? What? Because it was a thing. You weren't the only one. A lot of women were doing it. A lot of people yeah. were doing it. It was at the rage at the time having the different color context. And I certainly considered it because those piercing blue eyes can get you a little more attention than regular color eyes. They just do. But I never went that deep to be thinking that it's because I was ashamed of my eyes. It was more a matter of, oh, I could, you know, attract more women possibly or get more attention for a role or something. Uh, if I'm auditioning, that was the logic in my mind. But I remember that being a thing. But also, dude, that's what you do when you're young. You experiment, you explore, you push the boundaries, you see what you can get away with and what works for you. Um, but the fact that you had that revelation for yourself with your kids, I thought is is really powerful. And clearly that was something you hadn't come to terms with yet until that moment. And so right. I hadn't even thought about it. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about it. And then I, when I, when my, when I got insurance, I was like, Oh, I'll get contacts. Let me get the blue. No, you know, I'm not going to. So where did this go back, Steve? Where does this circle back to? It ties back into, he treated his hair, red treated his hair to be more quote unquote, as he said, Oh, look, why don't it? And, and that's where I feel like, man, it, it's, it is a bit of a subconscious conditioning. So three, I have three thoughts. The first thought is, I really want to see a picture of this. Oh. The, the second thought. Go be, friends, go be friends with Dre on Facebook. I think he has one up there of him. With I, I am friends with Dre on Facebook, okay. but I have not perused the photos. I'm going to have to take a look. Man. Um, the, the, the second thing is, like for me, whatever look you want, I totally support people's right to do 
whatever crazy things with their hair, their eyes, whatever. That's great. And the third thing is, man, this stuff goes real deep. Yeah. And and where it really hits, if it didn't hit you when you heard the definition of black, when he reads the definition of white, and this is now Malcolm reading, and you get to the part where it says, Innocent, pure, huh, ain't this something without evil intent, harmless, honest, square dealing, and honorable. Wait a minute, but this, this, this was written by white folks, though, right? I mean, this white, white folks book. For me, this was like a baseball bat to the face. This was like a, uh, your world is not what you think it is moment. Yeah. And God bless people who are open-minded to this stuff because that's how change happens. It's not about making you feel terrible. It's about educating you about this and not even educating for a place that you're ignorant in a negative way. It's educating you in a place of like, look, here's a perception or a point of view or perspective you might not have known. Here's uh, some facts for you to consider. Right. And I think that's what people misunderstand about a lot of Spike's movies. He's putting shit on the table. It's up to you to take it off the table, go home with it and think about it. He's not making you do it. It's up to you. And I think this is what you're talking about, Steve, right now. I think it's very important, very powerful because nothing changes in our world without white people getting involved in the change. That's the honest truth, because it's a it's a majority white world and especially in this country. So enough white people have to be open minded to see these things, understand these things. And then make take the steps to change. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know? um, and I think there's a huge difference, and this is what's always hard to separate, is the difference between accurate observations and accurate conclusions. Yes. Because right. this observation, you can't argue with this. This is what it says in the fucking dictionary. Yeah. Exactly. You know what I mean? That a and, white and, person wrote. A dictionary that a white person wrote. So what are we reading this one for? Because the truth is lying there. If you read behind the words... You got to take everything the white man says and use it against him. That is the conclusion. That is where he takes the information. And so, and this is where I think some people watching the movie, that's it for them. Like, whoa, whoa, what are you talking about? I can't deal with that. As opposed to going, I could see where you could get from those definitions of black and white to the conclusion that Baines is making. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then he says, you got, you know, you're going to read the whole book. And he suggests you read the dictionary from A to Z. Um, this actually was Malcolm's idea. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, he, he came up with it. In fact, this whole course of study, it sounds like he obs- read just obsessively when he was in prison. Mm-hmm. It was really all what he was interested in. It wasn't someone guiding him. If you take one step toward Allah, he will take two steps toward you. And me, the atheist, burst into tears. Wow. Yeah. That's so moving yeah. to me. And we see he's in his cell, he's reading, and then we're out on the yard again, and everyone's celebrating because Jackie Robinson was brought into the majors. Uh, And Malcolm Little, this is really true, was a huge Jackie Robinson fan. Mm -hmm. So this was a big deal for him. And Baines (laughs) Baines really knows how to rain on a parade, you know? Knowledge can do that, yeah. It's true. It's true. They let us sing and dance and smile. And then they let one so-called Negro into the majors. That doesn't cancel out the greatest crime in history. When that grafted, blue-eyed devil locked us in chains, 100 million of us broke up our families, tortured us, cut us off from our language, our religion, our history. Again, I cannot argue with it. I don't think all white people are devils, but that is what was done. And the camera is tracking along these black faces. I love it. It's an amazing moment. What a Now, why do you think that he doesn't... uh, the culpability of the tribal chiefs uh, in Africa 
that were black that sold their people. That gets skipped over. And I wonder how he would, if the reading was in depth at that time for Red, how he would have dealt with that. Because that's a a big piece. Well, Dre, what happens later in the movie? Baines essentially sells Malcolm out to the Nation of Islam. So. Wow. Right? Wow. I mean, that's, that's basically thing. it. Yes. It's that's, basically it's a, it. Wow. I didn't even think about that. Of course. He, he, he took them in and then he sold them out. He sold them out. And, and that's, you're absolutely right to bring that up. So that's something that's a part of the, I think people move past that because they go, well, they wouldn't have sold them if people didn't want to buy them. Uh, and the idea that the, you know, Africa is just a whole nother, I mean, I, I don't think any of us are educated enough on Africa to go bone deep on why stuff like that happened or does happen because we've seen so many genocides on that continent that you're just like, man, I don't know how they view life, you know, because so many people are just killed in the most horrific ways on that continent. Uh, it's just crazy. So, yeah, but I think that's Baines essentially, you know, sells them out. I, I, I really want to hear, because, John, I know you had a reaction to that shot going across the faces. So yeah, I want to yeah, yeah. get back to that. But I think, to me, one of the lessons of this movie is, is that people are actually people. That we're all the, basically the same and capable of goodness and evil and betrayal and all that shit. And the, because I think humans want to divide things into these groups and go... These are black people. These are white, blonde hair, blue eyed devils. These are, and they do these things as opposed to going, no, there were people we met with Malcolm growing up on the streets that weren't that nice. Yeah. You know, that were doing a lot of bad shit and that we see, we're going to see the nation of Islam. They do these amazing things and they do some bad shit and that we all, that's, we're all like that, you know, Uh, but John, this shot of going across these faces. I think it's a beautiful shot. You know, when I saw it, obviously in my early twenties, the shot of the different kind of black men that he was showing you in that shot. He was telling you, look, this moment is great. Jackie Robinson, all of this is fantastic. But look at how many of these other men society is systemically destroyed. How many of these other men that, you know, there's a, there's almost a sadness through the panning of the shots and oh, yeah. in, in trying to make you feel how many of their dreams were crushed by a systemically racist society. And I think that's what's so great. It's the juxtaposition. So yes, you can celebrate. Certainly major league baseball still does it opening day. They had, I think the, every team had a one person wearing 42 on there. And every year on Jackie Robinson day, the, all the teams wear 42 on their jerseys, which is a great celebration. It's a great way. But on the other side of it, what Baines is saying is true as well. Both things exist. It was great that Jackie Robinson broke through, but also look how long it took and um, look how many how many uh, people's dream, how many black people's dreams, regardless of what field they wanted to go into, were crushed or destroyed because of a systemically racist society. And so that pan across makes you feel the weight of that and the emotion of it. It's and it's. It's a powerful move. It's he's showing you generations in the faces, centuries of black people in the faces. And I think it's genius. And then, if I recall correctly, the shot buttons up by a close-up of Denzel watching them. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then a rack two shot of Bane kind of behind Denzel, looking over his shoulder, seeing Denzel sing it, almost like. Mm. 
Excellent. It's all coming to plan. <laughs> yeah. Like the little, so, de- not devil on a shoulder. I don't yeah. mean like that, but like you see, you see all the faces, the sea of faces, you see Denzel seeing the faces and then you see, um, you see Bane behind him. Uh, yeah. Also watching. So yeah. I thought that was a real good directorial choice. Knowing where to put the cameraman. And yeah. um, uh, two things. One thing is, you might notice that a, most of these guys have hats on. Yeah. Any guesses on why they most of them have hats? Their hair? Uh, no. <laughs> the, they call, their they hair. hair. It's oh. 1992. Oh, right. Picture African-American hairstyles in 1992. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> it good it point. would not play well on this, you know, 1940s prison yard. Um, the other thing, by the way, again, it's sort of the conclusion is that Baines's conclusion is that putting Jackie Robinson in the majors is a conscious choice to throw the black man in bone in order to make it easier to keep him down. Mm. As opposed to branch Ricky thought that it was a good idea. He wasn't, you know, it wasn't done to keep the black man down. It right, was right. done because it was done why it was done. Yeah. And then he, you know, lays out basically this history that, that the black man was the first man that he didn't live in caves, that there was a race of Kings, all of this, and then we get to this moment where he says, Do you know where you came from? What's your name? Malcolm Little. No. That's the name of the slave masters who own your family. You don't even know who you are. You're nothing. Less than nothing. Who are you? Baines is laying down the history of black men, right? He's talking, black people, right? He's talking about all of that. Um, you know, for centuries, this and that. We were a race of kings, you know, we we are the original man. These are groundbreaking, <laughs> insane concepts to put into a mainstream movie in the early 90s. I know that in the 1970s, you know, that was the thing. And the Black Panthers and those movements there were there to bring pride back to black people. But in the but that wasn't mainstream. This is a mainstream movie from a mainstream Warner Brothers studio uh, espousing these concepts. It's fascinating. And there's Baines um, dropping this all on him and trying to make sure he understands who he is. And in essence, Malcolm stops becoming Malcolm Little and Malcolm becomes every black man that Spike Lee is trying to talk to through Baines. Even though Baines becomes someone who, who turns on him, I think this whole scene where he's talking to him about who are you is Spike talking to the black audience through Baines. Who are you? Embrace your power. Embrace your pride. Embrace what we can be and push back against what white society wants to turn you into, wants to vilify you as, or wants to paint you as. There's something more prideful. Do your research. Do your history. Understand your footprint, um, historical footprint in this world. You know, And I think it's so powerful. And kudos to Warner Brothers for putting the movie out. Shit, man. Because, I mean, it wasn't like everyone was jumping up and down to uh, tell this story. Um, yeah. a, a story like this. You know, like you said, this this is pretty groundbreaking. So uh, kudos to WB. All right, I ain't Malcolm Little. I ain't Red. I damn sure ain't safe. That's right. So who are you? I don't know. I love the construction because you got to break the guy down to nothing before you can build him back up. We are a nation the tribe of Shabazz lost in this wilderness called North America. And it's like, okay, here's an identity for me. 
The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us that the white man is a devil. Mm, I've sure met some in my life. No. Elijah Muhammad does not say that some white men are devils. He teaches us that all white men are devils. And this is where it's like to me, it's like you just read how terrible it is in this book that black pe- way black and white are written. And then the conclusion, well, that is so terrible and it was done on purpose. Therefore, the opposite must be true. Mm. And it's like, well, you've just made the same blunder, you know? Yeah. Supremacy of any race is always a danger, right? Or it should always be rejected. But, you know, yeah, clearly true. we're seeing now the rise in white supremacy in our world and across all the countries. You know, we're in the middle of a pretty insane battle in France between Macron and Le Pen about who is going to take over that country right as Putin and Zelensky are having their battle with Ukraine and Russia. It's insane. And far right stuff is happening all over the world. It's because white people are being convinced that people of color are coming to take everything they have. And they're convinced that they know how to run the world better. And they are the supreme race at a base level. And enough white people, sorry, are being convinced of this that they're dialing into this rhetoric and 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 conceding to this rhetoric and I think it's leading to some you know yeah. horrible consequences down the road. Well uh, it's it's, it's anytime you're in this narrative of I am the victim of this other group who is a unified whole consciously trying to destroy me. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into some fucked up shit. And it's the, <laughs> and it's not that there isn't uh, tons of truth that might lead you to believe that thing, you yeah, know. Yeah. Malcolm certainly has plenty of reasons to think of white people as devils. Yeah. His his whole life is evidence that that was true. The sequence of all the white men that he flashes through, it confirms to him that, oh, maybe, maybe he's right. You know, it's so funny though. That was what? Seven, seven um, people. To to make a, uh, a life altering decision about all of the white people based on seven. It, it tells you the power, though, that first of all, the desolation that people must have been meant to, like you were saying, John, yeah. what you have to do to survive, the, the way you have to think just to survive right. Right, right. is it, it's a different mindset. But then, too, the the hunger to accept, to find somewhere to belong that also is empowering must have been insatiable to take it from there to where he went. I mean, yeah, it, it's it's incredible the the human spirit and what it needs to thrive and and to survive we're in a space that's like a narrow corridor and it is very consciously lit like a church beautiful yeah Yeah. Yeah. and this moment is so powerful again to me the atheist it's so powerful Hmm. and this is him giving his oath his putting himself over to islam he says i will not touch the white man's poison his drugs his liquor his swine, his women. I will not commit adultery or fornication. I will not lie, cheat, or steal. It's an amazing transformation. and But then the next moment is so key. But the key to Islam is submission. And he kneels down. That is why five times daily we turn to Mecca to pray, to bend our knees in submission. And can Malcolm do it? No, he can't. He's not there yet. And I think that's so good the way it's constructed in the film, this convergence, it's earned. It's slow. It's step by step. And it's breaking down all of Malcolm's defenses, right? 
his last thing to go, just like it says in the Bible, pride goeth before the fall, for him to fall to his knees, his pride about subjecting himself to someone. Um, ironically, another father figure is yeah. uh, is powerful. And so it has to be like there has to be a moment and the moment's coming right after this scene uh, where he sees the vision and finally is able to because he had to buy in fully in order to give himself and everyone's process, no matter what your religion is, and your religion doesn't have to be God connected. It could be anything. You have to understand there is a moment where you will be asked to fall to your knees physically or, or uh, figuratively in order to give yourself to this thing in order to have it have the effect and the change in your life that you wanted to have. And I think that's, that in this moment, which is why he's not ready. He's he he can speak it, he can understand it. He's not ready yet, you know. Well, and I love that we hear that he was could get on his knees to rob a house. Yeah, <laughs> right. Tell Allah that you can grovel and crawl for sin, but not to save your soul. Pick the lock, Malcolm. Pick it. And then we cut to a scene. He's sitting in his jail cell, and we hear the narration. He says. I received a letter that day from the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. The dear holy apostle wrote to me, a nobody, a, a, a junkie, a pimp, and a convict. I have come to give you something which can never be taken away from you. And the camera is tracking in a circle around him sitting there and then appearing in his jail cell in the glowing gold light is seated Elijah Muhammad. I bring to you a sense of your own worth. The worth of one human being. The knowledge of self. What's cool, cool about this is this is Star Wars technology. What this is, is, you know, they invented these computer-controlled camera rigs so they could do multiple passes on a TIE fighter and then composite them all into the same shot. So you could do exactly the same camera move. Well, that's what this is. They do one camera move that where the room is lit one way with Denzel Washington, and they do another camera move where the room is lit completely differently with the actor playing Elijah Muhammad, and that is, uh, and that's and then you composite them together, and that's how you get this amazing scene. Yeah, and the actor playing Elijah Muhammad is Al Freeman Jr., and his performance is amazing. I, I, you know, I know we're not supposed to imitate people, but that. His voice is so dis and he, and if you listen to Elijah Muhammad's speeches, he nailed it. Oh, oh yeah, my nailed. God, he nailed nailed, nailed. The, the cadence, the sound, the 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 vocal quality, all of it, absolutely nailed it. And and he was a and he's a professor at he was a professor at Howard, a teaching acting professor at Howard for many many years. So they, it's almost like Lee Strasberg. He is the black totally. They're the yes. they're essentially black and white version of the same kind of history in terms of connecting and teaching so many young actors uh, to embrace this art and this craft. And him coming in is so powerful. I mean, I tell you, it's just all of it just so good. It's so good. Mannerisms, the subtlety, yes. even the way that he listens. And I like that Spike did not shy away from sitting on the reaction shots of Elijah mm -hmm. Muhammad, the character. Because sometimes when, when you're doing a biopic, if someone doesn't have a down, down pat, 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 yeah, yeah. You, you try and cut around it, you try and hide it a little bit, you, 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 gap, you capture what you need and you get out of it. Yeah. He, he just sat on him and just let the camera 
soak in his entire essence, and he was in the zone. Yeah. And, and, and here's one of the ironies. He played Malcolm X back in 1979 for Roots, The Next Generation. So oh, in wow. a way, it's like coming full circle on one role that he played. And of course, a, a person who is very powerful and important in the black community. The most dangerous creation in the world, in any society, is the man with nothing to lose. You do not need... Ten such men to change the world, one will do. The power of one person, and ironically, of course, Malcolm X still resonating because of that one man did so much, you know. And the the words, the narration we hear from Malcolm is pretty much word for word what's in the autobiography. Yeah. And this really did, ha- he really, he did, Baines didn't exist, but he really was writing back and forth with Elijah Muhammad. Elijah Muhammad did send him letters and sent him money in prison. Yeah. Uh, And we hear Malcolm say, We had taught that Paul on the road to Damascus heard the voice of Christ. He was so smitten by the truth that he fell from his horse. Now, I don't liken myself to Paul, but I do understand. You see, it happened to me. You know what else that does? Which is really just a brilliant way of, uh, (laughs) I think, uh, uh, writing from Spike. By even just mentioning Paul and mentioning a Christian figure, it, it demonstrates how well read and well versed he was. Yeah, it, it gives you a little bit. It, I feel like it opens the door a little bit to people like, oh, this is a Muslim movie. Oh, wow, he even knows about Paul. I just thought it was really uh, smart placement. Well, I, I mean, honestly, I wonder how many people know that the Muslim faith includes Jesus and Christianity. Yeah, yes, you know. Yes. Like it isn't no. just like some totally different thing. They acknowledge <laughs> Jesus as a great prophet and Moses and all that, you know, it's, it's a continuation just as Christianity is a continuation of, off of Judaism. I know Morgan Freeman gets so much credit for his voiceover credit in Shawshank and, and rightfully so. I oh mean, yeah. Obviously rightfully so. I just miss my friend. Uh, it's great. But Denzel's voiceover work here in the film is often overlooked and it is so incredible in certain moments because it, there's an, how can I say this? There's almost um, an open innocence to these scenes when he's narrating them. And then I could do it. And just the simplicity of that line. Someone could overact that line like crazy. He just delivers it so simply and honestly and truthfully. And Spikey Lee shooting from below as Malcolm comes down and then shooting from the side from a little bit further away. So you grasp what's happening, the, the, the moment. It's just so well done. And I remember this is where, no, this is where I started to get emotional the first time I watched it. But it wasn't until later that I was full on crying in the theater, like crying in the theater. And it's so powerful because religion to me is something that is very, very deep inside me as a Latino growing up in a Catholic house. The religion is, is such a foundational piece of who I am that I understand this moment. I understand this journey you know and i think a lot of us go on this journey in different ways at different stages of our lives come back and touch base with this thing when we get too far off the Mm. where we were you know and so i love this moment it's such a beautiful moment well and i'll say something that might sound very strange which is that Mm. so i said it now many times i'm an atheist i do not believe that god or allah exist but I also don't believe that Malcolm could have changed without Allah. I don't, I oh, think, interesting. 
Okay. I think God was necessary to this. Yeah. If, if somebody came and gave him exactly the same stuff Baines gave him, told him, showed him the dictionary, told him about the white devil, framed the world with this, told him he had to become pure, he had to become upright, all this stuff, yeah. but it wasn't religious, I don't think it would work. Agreed. And this is the turn. This is the mm-hmm. turn in his life. Uh, Baines, we hear, has gone home. We see Malcolm go to the barber, and he's finally symbolically going to get rid of that conch. He writes letters back to Shorty at the West Indian Archie. Needless to say, they don't become Muslims right away. Uh, He's written to the governor. He's written to the president. All of this is true. And it's fun. Like we're now kind of having fun again in a strange way. And doesn't he say, oh, I wrote the president. I don't know why he hasn't written back yet. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) The innocence, though, at that point. Well, I actually think he's joking. I think he knows why he's not getting written back. Right, right. The scene with Christopher Plummer is so fun. And I love Christopher Plummer's really not wanting to call on Satan. I can see this has become a struggle between good and evil. Satan has a question. (laughs) Yes, sir, Chaplain Gill. But since neither one of us are God, I don't think either one of us are in any position to say who's good and who's evil. Mm. Again, where he uses Baines to speak to black men and women... Here, he's using Malcolm to speak against religion and against, well, against the idea of, and and the Catholic Church has been invested in promoting this idea that they are the only religion that really matters on earth. I don't care what they say. This is the truth. And so him pushing back on Christopher Plummer's character, I think, is so vital in making a commentary about this idea that it's been the Catholic religion predominantly that has pushed this idea of a white Jesus and a white apostles and a, and not a black Jesus or a black apostles or a darker skinned Jesus and dark skin. So him kind of going at Plummer, who represents the church in this in this movie, is great, just great back and forth because it's a philosophical debate. Yep, and I think that's so essential. Everything needs to be questioned all the time. Everything needs to be talked about, and there's nothing wrong. You can be more educated from a debate than you can from just devouring information. Well, and again, I go to the conclusions. I love that Malcolm calls him out on this, what the apostles look like, what did Jesus look like, and that it's very clear. I mean, he's pretty much quoting chapter and verse that he has studied to do this. But I also think it's, you know, it's the wrong conclusions because he, he says, look, neither of us is God, so I don't think either of us can say who's good and who's evil. But in fact, he is saying because he's saying the black man is good and the white men are devils. You know, he's falling into the same trap that he's accusing Christopher Plummer of, although he's doing it in a way that's really fun to watch. Also, the performance change here is incredible by Denzel. Oh, yes. This this scene is the beginning of this completely new character that Malcolm has become, a person that Malcolm has become. And Denzel now is Denzel in this, right? Like this whole wide-eyed innocence of, uh, you know, hustling and all the stuff that he's doing through the movie this is the moment where it changed. There's a, a composed foundational strength to what he's doing here in the back and forth. And also, in a way, if you're looking at it subtly, this is what education means. So many communities, you know, fight against education, fight against becoming intelligent. But intelligence is how you change things. Intelligence is how you understand things. And intelligence is how you can speak into another person's intelligence and get through to them, you know? And so this whole different approach, I think, is so powerful in him getting Plummer to say, uh-huh. And he goes, amen. It's just yeah. so, such a brilliant button on this back and forth between them. It's great. He he also, and particularly in this next scene, strangely enough, looks younger. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. He looks reborn, you know? Yeah. And because the next scene is he is now at the at the headquarters. He's going to meet Elijah Muhammad. He's at the bottom of the stairs. And the shot of him walking up and the emotion yeah. that Denzel Washington is filled with mm. and what he does when he is in this room with him is amazing. You know what I felt like he found here? And I was just thinking about this. I personally subscribe to the to the belief that the absence of uh, especially for young men, at times not having a father figure can be psychologically something to process that's difficult. And I think when Dan, uh, when um, Little lost his father, there was a big gap left. And I almost felt like at that moment when we see him in the room, it was like he had a father figure again that he could, he just broke. Like he just yeah. completely mm-hmm. broke. Mm-hmm. And it was yeah. like, he felt full. He felt Denzel's brilliant. But yeah. to me, yeah. it, it felt like he was showing us he is now whole mm-hmm. at that moment mm-hmm. because of that gap being filled by this man. It wasn't even by the religion itself, and it wasn't by anything that particularly happened. It was just the presence and the and the connection between this older, wiser man. And he keeps talking about how wise he was and the wisdom and the pain and there was a connection that he felt that I think that especially as a black man, yeah. your dad makes a difference. And I felt like he really showed that in that scene. Yeah. It, it only just occurred to me just the physical contrast between Elijah Muhammad and his actual father, you mm. know, who's this huge, powerful man. Right. You know, um, I, I, I think Denzel, you know, we always talk about his, his power, his strength, mm. that, that, that dynamics he can put on the screen the vulnerability and the that he shows in the scene is amazing and i love the choice and i'm pretty sure this was denzel's choice of him being stooped over because yes. he and he says cuz he didn't want his head to be higher than elijah muhammad's right i was just going to comment on that as an actor watching that the body positioning plus the costuming the suit is too big for him yeah so all of it he looks like he is coming hat in hand to this person he looks like I, you know, this is the best I could do. I'm, I'm, I don't have a lot of money. This is the best because everyone else around him, you see all those uh, black Muslims there. They're wearing nice fitting suits. They're in, you know, security there and walking them up. But he is, his suit is almost kind of semi wrinkled, and so he's coming in essence to completely um, from a place of, in his mind, poverty to find richness in this man. And you mentioned Steve, the the father figure thing. Or the father's connection here, because his dad is his original, his biological father was so much bigger. Um, but both were men of religion. Yep. Right. And so both preaching, Marcus Garvey is connected to what Elijah Muhammad is preaching. The idea, not that they, uh, the black Muslims are saying they have to go back to Africa, but there is this sense of reconnecting back to African culture, African roots to find your strength and your power and your self love. Mm-hmm. Right. So the connective tissues are there between both father figures. And this is the moment where I burst out into tears, just yeah. burst into tears uh, in the theater because Malcolm's performance, as you said, Steve, the vulnerability, the te- those aren't, you know, what do they put in people's eyes to me? The crystal yeah. glycerin or whatever it is. That's not that fake shit. That is real shit dripping down his face. Then you know it and feel it and sense it. And you're right, Steve, his hunched body position, almost as if he's, a sh- it's almost like what Moses talks about, right? The burning, he had to shield his face from God at the yeah. burning bush. He is essentially the burning bush for him. And there's almost a shame that he is 
in the presence of such a magnificent man in his mind. There are certainly things that we're going to maybe criticize Elijah Muhammad for as this film goes on. Of course, of course. But in this moment. Well, but no, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say the same thing is that I don't think you can deny that this is a both a brilliant man and a tremendously wise man who is giving Malcolm what he needs at this moment. Mm -hmm. Because he he first he names what Malcolm has been. He says, You have been a thief. Drug dealer in the in the hospital, and the world is still full of temptation. I think he picks the perfect story for Malcolm at this moment because he picks the story of Job. When God spoke to the devil about how faithful Job was, the devil argued that it was only God's protective hedge around him that kept him pure. Fact about it, the devil said, "Remove." that hedge and he will curse his maker Malcolm your hedge has been removed and I believe you will remain faithful I've actually funny enough been studying Job right now oh wow and I just finished yesterday and it's quite a story it's it is and the comparison of the hedge being removed and him saying to him your hedge has not been removed i believe i believe you'll remain faithful we see it through the end almost to a fault almost to to his own i mean in a way yeah to, to his destruction yeah but um the the willingness to believe and the need to believe and that's a theme that I think that uh, I think Spike is, Spike is really playing with that with that theme. Mm-hmm. The, the need to believe in something is so big, yeah. And I think as a as a black person in America, and I can't recall if the line if it's alluded to in the script, but they're just there. Sometimes you need something to believe in that can bring you together. Mm-hmm. when you feel like the world won't get off your neck. Yeah, yeah. The moment's amazing. And to me, it always resonates for me with the one of the most powerful moments in Les Miserables where Jean Valjean has mm-hmm. stolen the silver and the bishop gives him the other silver, says, hey, you forgot this. Yeah. And in the, in the musical, the line is, I've bought your soul for God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's also a character who is at his bottom, who yeah. a good man comes in and turns him around. And he becomes a good man. Um, and at this moment of Malcolm, who I will no longer refer to as Malcolm Little, as Malcolm X has met the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, I think it's a good time to end part two of our exploration of Malcolm X. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can visit us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. You can subscribe to the show at all the usual places. You can review the show everywhere you can, and you definitely should. You can support us at patreon.com slash the cinephiles, and you can buy or stream Malcolm X along with every other film we've ever talked about on cinephiles.net. John, how would people find you? You can find me. No, you can find me at the. At, I'm sorry, it's not, I'm not in any way making fun of it. I think it's just so incredible that I'm, I just want to try it every once in a while. Um, you can find me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch. Please come to Twitch and follow me there, and my YouTube channel, YouTube.com/slash John Roca says, um, and my other two podcasts, the Top Ten and the Geek Buddies. Andre, 
I've said it every time, and every time it is true. It has been an absolute joy having you on the Cinephiles. Yeah, brother. Thanks. Um, if people wanted to find you or see your work, how would they do that? You know, that's funny. I'm actually going right now <laughs> to see what my, my YouTube handle is. Um, but for, <laughs> on, <laughs> on Instagram, you would find me at Andre Gordon Official. Oh. On TikTok, you would find me at Andre Gordon Official. And on YouTube, you'd find me at Four Horsemen Studios. In the meantime, I have some movies out on Amazon and uh, Netflix, some shows out. Just Google Andre Gordon and stuff will come up. <laughs> he will appear. <laughs> um, and I think that's it for this week. We'll be back next time for part three, the final part. I don't know. Mm. We'll see of Malcolm X. Uh, and that'll be next week on The Cinephiles. Cinephiles.